All right, I'm going to start in verse 22, if you haven't already uh, turned there. Uh, and honestly, if you are new, if you're family and, and you're just, you don't normally come to Bell, this is what we usually do. We're, we're in the book of Matthew, we usually take a section of Scripture and we just go through it verse by verse. Uh, but in our season of Advent, we've been taking certain uh, topics and going through them. And so uh, tonight is uh, the candle we lit was the Christ candle. So let me get there in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. We're kind of jumping in the middle of a story. Maybe not all of us are aware of it. We don't know the pronouns there. So the they is uh, the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and the him is Jesus. So when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, they being the parents, him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written uh, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. A lot of this gets into the, um, the firstborn and what the, the law speaks to that. Verse 24, to, the, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, there's a lot of story before this, which I think I'm assuming all of us are aware of when it comes to the virgin birth. Uh, angels and wise men and all that stuff. But what we have in this moment is Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem to offer this purification based on uh, Exodus 13 and Leviticus 12. And our best guess is this is probably within the eight days in which Jesus is born. We're guessing that because this is part of the circumcision process of purification that they, that a, a, a firstborn needs to go through. And this is honestly a little bit uh, heightened in the purification process because there are other laws in regards to the firstborn male um, as opposed to other uh, uh, males or females born after this, right? So uh, the child that is firstborn uh, has some certain laws around it. That being said, we get verse 25. That's the context there. We're introduced to this guy named Simeon. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man, listen to the descriptive words, this man was, one, he was righteous and devout, two, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, number three, the Holy Spirit was upon him, number four, uh, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, okay, so we get some descriptive language of this guy, which we'll study him in a couple years, well, some of you only see Christmas Eve anyway, so we'll find out, you know, three or four Christmases from now kind of uh, about him, but we do see four indicators about him. Again, he's, he's devout and righteous, which is, you know, key. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. We'll come back to that towards the end. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And then the last one's a little bit weird. The Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. Okay, so it's a little bit about Simeon, but, but he's aware that he's not going to die until he sees the coming of the Messiah. And he came in the spirit in the temple, and when the parents who brought the child Jesus uh, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... So he's been waiting for this moment. He knows he's not going to die. Maybe in some ways it's bittersweet, but it seems to be all sweet in the moment because now that he's seen this baby, he knows he can uh, uh, go be with the Lord. So he sees Jesus, takes the baby. You can only imagine Mary like has no idea who this dude is. Not only is it a baby, her baby, but it's like, hey, he's going to save the world. Please be careful, right? And he's like swinging him around like Mufasa. You, like this moment of like, hey, who's this guy in this temple that says he's not going to die until he sees this Messiah, right? It's, it's beautiful. It's weird, the whole thing kind of together. Verse 29, verses uh, uh, 29 through 35, I'm going to read now, okay, which I don't know is, it might be a song or it might be just him outright saying it. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm not going to break it down. That will, when we get to Simeon in the coming years, we'll break this text down, but at least for context, let's uh, see what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace 
according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now he's uh, speaking directly to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall uh, and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your uh, soul also. It's prophetic going to Mary there. So the, uh, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's all we've got on Simeon, okay? That's our context though. So we got a lot of context going. Then enters, and it, and, and it wouldn't be random if this story wasn't beforehand, the person we're studying, Anna, okay? Here's how the person we're studying starts in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, so, yeah, we've got Simeon, we've got all that, what's going on, we got his story. Hey, also, we have this prophetess, Anna. There's this prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineo, uh, of the tribe of Asher. Let me read these descriptive things about her, and then we'll break them down. She, would, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. All right, this is the person that we're going to study. So let's take some time. We'll ask the question why in a second, but let's just get the what here, okay? First things first, before we even get her name, we get that she's a prophetess. Uh, we are complementarian in our uh, uh, view of men and women, so I'm not going to get into the conversation of women prophets and all that stuff right now. I will say, regardless of where you stand on that, there are women prophets in the Bible. Uh, Miriam, the sister of Moses in Exodus uh, 15, is described as a prophetess. Deborah, the judge, uh, Judges 4.4. Huldah in 2 Chronicles 34. Isaiah's wife. In Isaiah 8, if you didn't know that, and then Philip's four unmarried daughters that we see later on in the book of Acts 21. So she's described as his prophetess. Okay, that's what we have there. Next, we get her name. Her name is Anna, which comes from the name Hannah. If you didn't know that in the Old Testament, if your name is Anna or Hannah, those names are woven together, which just means favor or grace. Okay, and then we get this next descriptive uh, uh, thing about her. So she's a prophetess. Her name is Anna, and she's the daughter of Phineal. Now, I know nobody, when I said Phineal, everyone's like, oh yeah, Phineal, we know who he is, right? He's maybe, maybe he's mentioned here because he's of some notoriety, um, maybe, I don't know. But here is what's interesting. Um, as human beings, we sometimes name our children after places, and sometimes we actually name places after people. And then sometimes it's so mixed together, we actually don't know what comes first. Um, so let me give you an example of this, the name Austin, which the Brants have named their son Austin. Austin actually comes from the name Augustine, but somewhere along the line, which just means magnificent is that what, what the name means, somewhere along the line, somebody decided to name a town in Texas Austin. Now, it's a really weird town at this point, this weird city in, uh, uh, in Texas, Austin, Texas. But then since then, people have actually named their children after the city right? And so it kind of goes back and forth, who is named, where it comes from. We don't always know. We get this with the name Dallas, the name Brooklyn, the name Jackson. These are all come from places. Well, the name Phineal, who is Anna's dad, we actually know where it came from. And then we know there are other Phineals in the Old Testament, into the New Testament, obviously mentioned here. But where it comes from is, is interesting. Phineal is um, the word in the Old Testament, Peniel, okay? And that may not feel like it's significant at all, but that name comes from Jacob when he wrestled in uh, um, Exodus, or I'm sorry, Genesis 32, when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And the reason this matters is he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord. The time is done. He says, I'm going to name this place Peniel, okay? Well, he says, I'm going to name this place Peniel, which means, and he goes on to say this, I have seen the face of God. Now, I don't think it's by accident Luke knows this, and he goes, and now you've got Anna, and what is she doing? 
she's waiting to see the face of God, right? That's just, there's certain times in the Bible you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know you got to act all stoic because it's, you know, Christmas Eve, but that's amazing, okay? Deserved at least 35, maybe 40 amens, but that's fine. Let's move on, okay? <laughs> so uh, he's from the tribe of Asher. Since we don't care about the Bible, we'll just move on to the next part of that, okay? She was advanced in years, having lived with her uh, husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then a widow until she was 84. So now we get a little bit about her life and what's going on. Um, culturally, we're just doing some rough math here. Culturally, she's probably married between the age of 13 to 17, somewhere in there. So we'll say the age of 14 for, for easy math. And we'll see why it's easy math in a second. So 14, she's married for seven years and then her husband dies and she doesn't remarry. She's a widow now until she's 84. Okay. So roughly you're looking at this, this time frame. She's 14, another uh, seven years of being married, 21 years. We'd say easy math, maybe 60 years of being a widow. 60 years of being a widow. And what we have here is in this advanced age, she was, you can see this quote, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And those are the descriptive words that we have of Anna. It's possible because she's a, a prophetess, um, she has some part um, in the temple where she can actually live and sleep and stay, or at least close to the temple. We kind of understand some of that, uh, those relationships historically, how they worked. But regardless, what we have is this moment where this prophetess Anna is waiting. She's 84 years old. She's this widow, and she's waiting, and she's connected to Simeon, most likely for the same reason she's waiting for the Messiah. Okay, And the same thing that happened with Simeon, now she sees the baby in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she now, she breaks out in doxology. She gives thanks to God that she sees the Messiah and she goes to tell everybody else who's waiting for the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of Israel. She goes off and, and tells them. And that's all we have of Anna. She's not mentioned again. Um, I know we're a Protestant, but in the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches, they've canonized Anna. They've made her a saint. As a matter of fact, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's interesting, they have in their church calendar on the, I want to say it's the 3rd and 16th of February, they celebrate with a feast, Anna. Now, I'm not saying that's all appropriate. I'm just saying this is how embedded she's been in church history, but this is all the text that we have. This is all we know about Anna here, okay? And so here's my question for us. Um, The rest of the Gospel of Luke is so bizarre when it comes to the birth of Jesus. Why are these two figures mentioned? I mean, the other stories, you go, that makes sense. There's like an angel speaking. Yeah, we should bring that up. There's multiple angels singing. Yeah, we should bring that up. Uh, there's a woman who's born or, or who conceives and she never lay with a man. Yeah, that's worth bringing up. Wise men travel from the east. Other babies are murdered. All these other things are worth bringing up. And then it feels like there's two figures... And all of these people that seem so insignificant, and, and I didn't mean this in no way in a pejorative sense, I'm not trying to at all, like we need more gray hairs in our church, but you have two elderly people who seem insignificant at the back half of their life. They're not mentioned again. They play no part with Jesus from this point on. Why? Now Luke's got limited uh, room to write here. He's writing to this guy, Theophilus, limited room. There's, there's only so many pages he can write, so many things that he can write, and he squishes a lot into his gospel. Why would he mention these two people? It, it plays to the rest of the story, nil. It has nothing to do with the rest of the story. And I think there are two things going on. I think the Holy Spirit gives us, in the Gospel of Luke, these two stories um, with Simeon, but specifically for Anna, for two reasons. Two reasons, okay? Here's the first reason. If you can look back at the text, I want you to see how Simeon is described, and it's the only thing that's in common with Anna. He is, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
And then you see with Anna, she goes about telling people who are waiting, all who are waiting for, what does it say? The redemption of Jerusalem. I think the first reason, um, and what he's telling to Theophilus and what he's also communicating to us now as we read this, is that what they're longing for, we should long for. They've spent 60 years of fasting and prayer. What they're longing for, we should long for. And there's a lot of things that we want to wait for, and there's a lot of things that we're willing to wait for, both in the short and long term, but it seems to be brought up. We see and we go, that's crazy. She never remarried? I thought marriage was the pinnacle of things. No, she never remarried. But she spent day and night in fasting for waiting for this baby to be born, and she's waiting for the comfort of Israel. She's waiting for the consummation of something. She knows there's something special about this baby who is the Messiah. And what they're waiting for, Luke seems to put in our face and go, you should be waiting for. Now, at a silly level, think of all the things we do wait for. I don't know if you guys know this, but in Wimbledon, which is the the, the tennis tournament every year uh, in London, they actually have a 31-page guide on the queuing for Wimbledon. 31 pages on how you're allowed to line up to get tickets to get into Wimbledon. That's how intense. It's actually become a tradition within itself. I remember watching a, um, an interview. This is years ago. This had to be 10 or 15 years ago, whenever the demonic Harry Potter films came out. Um, but when they came out, I remember watching an interview. Uh, the, the person who was interviewing was interviewing this little girl and her parents because she was, uh, and I'm not making this number up, 130,001 in line. A hundred not 13,000, 130,001 in line because 250,000 tickets were pre-released for, for them to go see one of the, you know, again, I'm not gonna get into that whole, you know, whatever, okay, we'll just like leave Harry, I don't wanna say his name, okay? Uh, but we get, we, we, so we wait, like you're willing to wait, 130,000 people are before you and you're willing to wait for that. Okay, that's silly, right? Yeah, that's so silly, we as humans do sometimes. Okay, let's kind of boil it down here for a second. But think of things that are like life pinnacle uh, moments, like landmarks of your life that you would go, I'm waiting for. Uh, Think of a mom who's about to give birth and she has what we call nesting. She starts to set up a room because she's waiting for this day for this child to be born. Or those of you who have just been married recently, or honestly, you're about to get married. Think of the last year. Think of how much time you put into one day. From jobs to relationships, it feels like the sum total of what we're waiting for could be grabbed by the Lord and go, all these things point to something. They seem to point to happiness for you now. They seem to point to what you think is going to bring you joy, but ultimately the reason you're doing it and the sum total of your heart actually equals hollowness. And Luke is going, what they're waiting for has density. And, and, and Anna and Simeon are not just some trivial uh, kind of symbols for the first coming of Jesus. Let me read you in the New Testament. The way that they're waiting for the first coming of Jesus is a recognition for us now in our Christian worldview is the way, at, not just a symbol, but an example of how we should wait for the second coming of Jesus. If you don't believe me, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says this, Christ having offered once to, uh, to bear sins will appear a second time, not to, heal, uh, not to deal with sin, here it is, but to save those who are, quote, eagerly waiting for him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says, there is laid up for me, Paul is talking, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And he goes on to say this, not only for me, but also to all those who love his appearing. We're longing, we're waiting, we love his appearing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope 
fully on the grace that is to come to you at the what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. As a short list, let me just get out what I'm saying. Every job, every child, every house, every car, every relationship, the walks you take, the conversations you have, the shows you watch, the workouts you do, every vacation, every book you read, every meal you share, everything should be a fragrance to go, Lord, I'm enjoying this because one day I'm gonna stand before you and I want you to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm longing for you. And these things are good, but they are not good without you. I'm doing this. I'm working. I love my family. I love my home. I I, I love my church. I love these relationships. I love all of that. But that only makes sense because I know one day you're going to make things right. It is not an accident. That language there, the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem is not some haphazard language. Everything you and I, believer or not in this room, we're longing for is actually ultimately rooted in the man Jesus Christ and what he's going to do at the end of the age. We're longing for it and we're trying to suffocate ourselves with trivial things. But Luke is going in and Simeon. Look at them for a second. What are they longing for? And my heart, I pray my heart would go, I want to long for what they long for. So that's, that's number one. That's number one. Number two is the language, if you're looking at the text again, and this is where we'll, we'll uh, start to wind this thing down. Simeon, quote, says, he blessed God. That's what Luke says about Simeon. And then about Anna, it says, she, quote, gave thanks. And this will be the last thing that I'll say on this. Um, for 2,000 years as Christians, we have been celebrating this thing, uh, Christmas Eve and the birth of Jesus. And it's awesome. Uh, what tends to happen though, what I'm finding a, a lot now, now as I get older, I'm so used to it. It feels like the, the regular merry-go-round of, I know Easter's coming sometime in the spring, and I know we've got Advent leading to the birth of Jesus. And it feels like um, when I used to do uh, street evangelism and then street ministry to the poor in particular, and I started this uh, organization, this organization, that sounds so fancy. I started this ministry, far less fancy than an organization, this ministry where we were providing gifts. Um, and what happened was when we were providing gifts, year one to year 10 changed because year one, we were handing out gifts and it was like, you, like you, it was insane. Like these kids... They, I mean, a lot of them were first and second century immigrants. A lot of them were in positions where they would have got nothing otherwise. And they were just like gone with what they were getting. And we were giving them such trivial things. Like honestly, little footballs and, and, and soccer balls, such simple things. And they were just so overjoyed about receiving this. And I noticed something. 10 years in running that ministry, I saw it about years five, six, and, and definitely in years, years eight, nine, and 10. It went from not just not excited, but it went to entitlement, it went to assumes, and it went to it needs to be better. Like we had to outdo ourselves, and, and that's a small snippet of the human heart. We know the joy that Anna and Simeon have of the first coming of Jesus Christ. We see it, they're, they're, they're pronouncing it. I mean, for goodness sake, he grabs a baby out of a mother's arms. Like there's something to be said about this joy. What's happening though is we get so used to it, we forget, you guys, this is bonkers that the same God that wrestled Jacob, that parted the sea, the same God that spoke to the prophets, he's born as a baby. He's on, he was at one point, God, the one that you can't see, that I can't see, that we love so desperately. There was a geographical point in a moment on time that he was actually on this earth. That's nuts. And that should bring joy. That, that, That brings us for a sense like, let the world celebrate how they wanna celebrate. I'm telling you, there's something crazy about our story and it's amazing. He came. Now check this out. It's not that he just came, but that same joy 
that we see in Simeon and, in, uh, Simeon and Anna, we have now, I'm telling you guys, he's going to return. And I know you feel like he's not sometimes, because I feel like he's not, but he will. He will. And it's going to be bonkers. Read the book of Revelation to see how crazy this thing's going to be. It's going to be crazy. We're not talking about trumpets being blown. We're talking about angels blowing trumpets. We're talking about crazy, crazy stuff. Have you ever read the, the description of the angels in the book of Revelation? They're full of eyes and lion's tails. The whole thing's bizarre. This is going to be amazing, and it should bring joy. It should bring joy. We should eagerly wait for that day. And our prayer should continue to be over and over and over again. I love my house. I love my family. I love my kids. I love my job. But I love all of those things because I long for the coming of Jesus Christ. I'd be a fool to rock such a beautiful Spurgeon sweater and not read a quote from Spurgeon. So let me finish us with that, okay? And the idea of Advent should make us happy. Here it is. Christians are to be filled with an inward peace and with a holy expectancy mixed with it. Whatever happens, all is well with the righteous. I know not what is to be, but I know that all shall be well forever and ever. There's something brighter and more joyful coming than we have ever yet known. All of our earthly bliss is but the waiting room of our eternal delights. That's such a dope line. Let let me read that again, okay? All of our earthly bliss, everything we experience that brings us joy on this earth, is but the waiting room for our eternal delights. Therefore, let us look up and lift our heads. Look up for him who is coming. Look up for him who has already come. March, uh, march to the strains of marital music uh, straight away to victory. Come, let us be a band of people who fully trust our Lord and who henceforth say farewell to doubt and trembling. It will be a wonderful sight when Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, sending your son. Jesus, we are so grateful that you bring joy, not just to Simeon and Anna, but for your followers for generations afterwards. We pray we would be part of that lineage, that we are grateful for um, your first coming, and we are expectant and joyful for your second coming. We pray, God, you would be with us as we process um, our day-to-day life and all of that. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.